to have fellowship under you, Lord, we thank you for the great blessings you've given us. Lord, we confess that uh, we don't keep the standards you've called us to, and so we ask forgiveness of our sins, so that at this time, right now, Lord, nothing stand between us and you and what you're trying to teach us. We ask that you bring our sins to mind so that we may confess them and turn from them. And Lord, that we would receive the forgiveness you promised when we do so, so that our minds may clearly perceive the gospel truths you're about to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so welcome again. The, me- the message this morning is called Gospel Power. Gospel Power. We're going to be in one of the uh, great verses of Scripture, a couple of verses, is Romans 1, 16 and 17. We'll get there in a moment. But first, I want to talk about, give a couple examples of things that sometimes we may be ashamed of, or maybe at least embarrassed by. For example, let's say that just this past Friday, you had people at your house, and after all of them left, you found out that there had been no towel put in the guest room for people to dry their hands on. I'm not going to say any names of who, that, who did that. But, you know, there's a little bit of embarrassment there, right? There's a little bit of shame to that. But that's not that bad, really, right? That's just a minor embarrassment, perhaps. But I saw an interview not too long ago, and it was a young lady whose father was a serial killer. It was one of the famous ones. I just don't remember which one. But, um, and she was talking about the effect that it had on her life. Can you imagine that? A family member uh, that does some horrible crime like that. Um, and the shame that you'd have to live with. You might even want to change your name so that you're not identified anymore with that person. Or another example, um, Janelle and I, when we were first married, worked for a company that was found out to have been doing some fraud. And there's some shame in that. It's like we're trying to be people of integrity, and you find out you're working for someone who's uh, not doing things the right way, and they're there's a point where you're so ashamed you don't even want to say you worked there, right? I don't want anyone to know about that. And uh, so there's lots of things that we can find ourselves being ashamed of. And this morning we're going to look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that Paul proclaimed, the same gospel I proclaim today, and we will see that Paul declares with confidence that he will never end up feeling shame like that. There's no shame in the gospel he has been presented to people. No one will ever be bamboozled by this gospel. And so as we look at Romans 1, 16 and 17 this morning, uh, before we get there, I want to give some context. And so I'm going to read from the very beginning of the chapter in a moment. And there's a reason we need that context. You see, many verses in the Bible... Uh, are separated into their own little paragraph. And, and in your Bible, you may find that Romans 1, 16 and 17 are separated into a separate paragraph. And some will have a subtitle there. My subtitle in, in the Bible I use was said, the righteous shall live by faith. However, we have to keep in mind, Paul did not put those headings in. He didn't separate out those paragraphs like that. Somebody did that, trying to do the best they could to give us some uh, 
separation of concepts and whatever. But that came later. Paul also didn't number the chapters and verses, but enough on that. In verse 16, he, uh, most translations rightly start with the word for, but some translations leave that word out, the word for, F-O-R. Um, and it lends to the wrong understanding sometimes uh, that this is somehow a new and separate thought that Paul is beginning rather than being part of his previous words that that were the greeting. And so I'm going to read all the way from verse 1 through verse 17 so that we can see what it is that Paul is building up to here. So if we go back to the very beginning of the, the book of Romans, it says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That's a long introduction, right? This is Paul just starting the letter. Now he's saying, who's the letter to? To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. In other words, he's writing to people who are believers in Jesus Christ. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for to the Greek. For in it the the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. All right, so in the intro to the letter, Paul begins by saying who he is, what he's called to do, who the letter is written to, and then he commends the church by telling them he thanks God for them, praying for them, longing to come and visit them, and that he is obligated to share the gospel. Now he continues and declares he's not ashamed because this gospel is powerful and has salvation power for those who believe it in faith. So Paul isn't selling something or finding out, um, you know, that he worked for a bad company. He's not finding out uh, he didn't put the guest towels out. He hasn't found out that he has a murder in his family. He knows and has confidence that the gospel is reliable. 
I am not ashamed. He has and will have no feelings of guilt. He will never be embarrassed. He will have no remorse for preaching this gospel. Paul is saying, I don't have to worry about having wrongly put my faith in this gospel. He has confidence and loyalty to Jesus Christ. Paul has not put blind trust in Jesus. He's been radically commissioned by Christ for this mission. His life was interrupted by the author of this gospel, and Paul has realized that this gospel is not something believed on because of an emotional experience alone, but rather that the Holy Scriptures point to Christ. And when the scales fell off his eyes, quite literally, he knew the truth of Christ because God himself had revealed it to him. Paul is not ashamed of this gospel, even though he has endured the kind of suffering that most people would feel some shame for because of this preaching. And we have nothing to be ashamed of ourselves if we believe it. Though the world may mock us, we can know with confidence that this gospel is true as long as we stay reminded of God's faithfulness. No, we need not be ashamed. In fact, probably should be the other way around. One writer said, the real wonder is that God is not ashamed of us. He is faithful when we are faithless. So there is no shame in the gospel. And Paul adds that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now we'll get to the Jew first and the Greek in a moment, but first let's consider what Paul meant by the power of God. The word translated power here in the Greek is dunamis, the same root word as the root that the word dynamite comes from. But that doesn't mean Paul's talking about some explosive and destructive power. After all, dynamite was not yet around. But the word dunamis means strength, force, or capability. It could mean there are resources available to make something happen. And who has more resources than God? So God's infinite resources are applied to the goal of salvation through the gospel. And the gospel means the good news, the glad tidings. Paul is saying he's not ashamed to tell the good news about Jesus because when he shares this good news, God uses his preaching and brings salvation. And not only that, but God puts his inexhaustible resources to work to bring about the salvation of everyone who believes. When someone believes the gospel, it is God who gets the credit for the salvation, not the preacher, not the church, and certainly not the one being saved because of their faith. The credit, all of it, is God's. Sometimes people who have been granted the privilege to share the gospel and seen people respond to it call themselves soul winners. And I, I think we need to realize that there's one soul winner, the one whose power is in this gospel. What does he mean then to the Jew first and also to the Greek? Jesus himself said salvation comes from the Jews. And this is true. And Paul's pattern of preaching was first to go to the synagogue and preach. And there he may have had some Jewish converts and some who rejected the gospel. And then once he presented it to them, he felt free to go on to non-Jewish people or Gentiles. Now, yesterday, I went and 
encourage all of you to do this sometime. We have a messianic uh, congregation in uh, Lake Worth that's associated with our denomination. And uh, they worship on Saturday, and I went and joined them yesterday. It was such a wonderful time together. Um, But it's a reminder as well that God's salvation came through the Jews, and it was also offered to Gentiles, or as Paul uses the word Greek, to represent all non-Jews in this case. And I don't want to spend too much time on that, but when Paul did say the Greek, he's not talking about only Jews and people from Greece can hear the gospel. Uh, in Paul's phrasing, Greek is just a way of saying everyone else, everyone who's not Jewish. Some translations use Gentile instead of Greek. In other words, Paul is saying this gospel is for everyone. It isn't the gospel for the Jews. It isn't the white man's gospel. It is for all who believe. And in the way of speaking at the time, Paul is simply saying the gospel is for everyone, regardless of your ethnicity. In fact, there were non-Jewish people who were referred to as God-fearers. They were people who were not Jewish by blood, but they believed that the God of the Jews was the true God, and many of them worshipped at his temple and were considered to be converts or proselytes to Judaism. So when Paul went to the synagogue to preach the gospel, both Jewish and Greek, or Gentile believers in the God of the Bible would be among the first in each community to hear the gospel. Now let's move on to talk about what he means by the righteousness of God. God's righteousness is a bankable righteousness. It is a word that means justice, fulfilling the law. Righteous is fulfilling obligations. A person who fulfills a covenant or a contract is righteous though we may not use that term so much in that context, but they would be trustworthy. They would have a good reputation. We have a resource that we can use today to see if a business is trustworthy, actually quite a number of them. And among the ways we can find out how reliable something is or how dependable a business is, we have Yelp. We can look at ratings there, Craigslist, Angie's List, Consumer Reports, Better Business Bureau, Stamp of Approval, J.D. Powers ratings, all those things. And I like to purchase things personally when I can if there's a website or something that gives me a rating for that. I don't normally take chances on a product with less than four stars on Amazon. I've learned the hard way. And the more the product costs, the more carefully that I research the reviews. There are two things that I like to look at. The ratings for the product itself and also the ratings for the customer service. Because both of those are important to me. And someone once recommended a particular brand of sandals to us, and so I bought a pair for me and a pair for the girls. Uh, And sometime later, I noticed that the stitching on one of my sandals was coming undone. So I went to their website, I filled out a warranty request, I snapped a photo of the sandal and the receipt, and a day later, I received an email from that company giving me credit to purchase a free pair of sandals on their website, and they didn't even make me mail back the ones that were um, defective. So I ordered the new ones, and shortly afterward, they were in the mailbox. I think that was pretty righteous. Of course, we all have stories that go one way or the other with stuff like that. But Paul says here, 
that not only is the power of God at work in the gospel, by which he means the presentation or preaching of the gospel, but that God's righteousness is revealed through it. His infinite power is working this out, but also his perfect yelp rating is behind it, so that the salvation to all who believe is solid. And both the preacher and the hearer can have complete confidence that they will never be put to shame because of this gospel. So does God make righteous or does he count righteous? Well, for many centuries, this was an ongoing argument between Catholics and Protestants. And there's a lot of discussion that can go with this, but rather than focus on the argument, let's consider what's really happening when someone believes the gospel. Righteousness is a gift which has the character of power, and God is sovereignly active in it. Perhaps another way to think about this is that God's righteousness enables and, in fact, achieves man's righteousness. The person whose righteousness comes from faith in God at once relies on his faithfulness and recognizes their own inability to become righteous. God's righteousness is imputed, we say, on the believer. Only he can do this. We can't do it ourselves. The bad news is we can't save ourselves. The good news, the gospel, is that he provides us with imputed righteousness. One thing that is prudent is to be careful of who you co-sign a loan for. I've heard advice given to those who would co-sign. Some say, never do it. Uh, Some say, if you co-sign, just assume that you're going to be paying off the whole loan and be prepared to do so. The person who needs a co-signer is one who cannot get the loan on their own merit. The banker looks at their righteousness. Do they have resources, the power, the dunamis to pay back the loan? Do they have good character that has proved reliable in the past? And the banker that tells the person seeking the loan that they need a co-signer has determined that one of these two things is lacking or both. Either the person does not have the resources to make the payments or their character in regards to paying their bills, which is reflected today through credit reports, is either not established or they have never proven that they can pay back a loan. In other words, they don't have any credit rating yet. Or they've paid late before or defaulted in the past. And so someone is needed to co-sign. Someone who has the resources and the reputation or righteousness to make the banker feel comfortable that the loan will indeed be repaid. If someone with a good reputation and good credit co-signs, and payments are not being made by the one who got the loan, the co-signer will make good for the sake of their own name. And thank God, we need not rely on our own ability to be righteous, but God will make righteous those who believe for the sake of his name. He will defend his own name and his own honor. So believing the gospel is like realizing we have a debt, a sin debt, that we are utterly unable to pay back on our own. And the banker needs to be paid. We have no capital of our own, no resources. We have no righteousness of our own, no reputation to rely on. The only thing that we can do is call out to our co-signer and say, I can't pay. I'm trusting in your promise to pay for me. 
Psalm 31.1 says, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. This is the cry of someone who knows they can't do it on their own. Isaiah 46.13 says, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. God says, I will put salvation in Zion for, for Israel, my glory. Isaiah 51 says, My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and my, for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. The people in whose heart is my law, fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. So in the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And what does he mean from faith for faith. Well, another way to put it is to say that from God's faithfulness to man's response of faith. Finally, we see that reference Paul makes to Habakkuk or Habakkuk or Habakkuk. I've heard it all three ways. You can choose your own. It says, The righteous shall live by faith. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. This is what Paul is quoting in Romans 1.17. And Galatians 3.11 says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Hebrews 10 says, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then, right after that, in chapter 11 of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews drives home and uses example after example of what some call the heroes of faith passage, because this is an important point to understand that it has always been and always will be that the only one way anyone is ever saved is through faith. The only way anyone can ever be declared righteous is through faith. The writer of Hebrews is saying throughout chapter 11, look, it is by faith. It is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. In Hebrews, we see that it is by faith. We believe God created the universe out of nothing. Ex nihilo, we just talked about that in D6 this morning. 
Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. Enoch was taken up by faith. Noah built the ark by faith. Abraham obeyed God by faith, lived in a land of promise by faith, and Sarah received power to conceive by faith. On and on and on it goes in Hebrews chapter 11. And then he says, all of these died in faith, not having seen the thing that they believed in because of God's promise. That is, they did not live to see Jesus see to see Jesus die for their sins, to make good on the promise. And people often ask this, well, how did the Old Testament saints get saved then if they didn't know about Jesus? They are saved because of faith. They believed God. And even though they had little to go on other than God's promise, they believed in faith and this was counted as righteousness. They were commended for their faith And God has provided something better for us. The writer of the Hebrews to the Hebrews said uh, in chapter 12, therefore, he's here after he wraps up the chapter of the heroes of faith and tells us example after example after example after example of of those who, who were saved by faith, he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You will never need to be ashamed of this gospel. You never need to be ashamed of this gospel, but are you sometimes? Let's take a moment of honest reflection. What would being ashamed of the gospel look like? Well, I'm afraid it would look an awful lot like many Christians today. Perhaps you heard things like this, or maybe you've said things like this. I'm a believer, but my faith is private. I don't go around making a big deal of it. Or I just want to live a good life. Maybe someone will notice, and then I'll share my faith. You know, there's a famous quote that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Supposedly, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Use words if necessary. And I've heard this quote from pulpits probably dozens of times in my life. You've probably heard it too, but there's two problems with this quote. There's a minor problem and there's a major problem. The minor problem is that St. Francis probably never said it. No historian has ever found a direct link between him and this quote. I have no idea whether he said it or not. However, I want to address the major problem with it, and that is that it is profoundly unbiblical. You cannot preach or share the gospel without words. That's absolute poppycock to think that. You will never find someone who was converted because some Christian was nice to them or was a good neighbor or a good coworker. The power of the gospel Paul writes about is not in niceness or politeness, 
Now certainly you should endeavor to be kind and generous and a nice person, but make no mistake, no one will ever be saved. No one will ever get up with a true salvation testimony and say, I am saved because of the niceness of this person that was in my life. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. You cannot hear what was never spoken. You cannot hear actions. The gospel must be shared. Yet why do so many Christians go covertly into their lives with their faith? How many of those friends and neighbors may say, yes, he's a nice person or she's so kind, yet when asked why, all they can do is shrug their shoulders. I don't know. Could it be that many professing Christians have never shared the gospel with people? Do not do so because they're ashamed. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you know that you cannot provide a good explanation as to why you do not share the gospel. Not sharing the gospel could be a symptom of a serious problem. Perhaps you're not confident in your own salvation, so you share not. Perhaps you feel ashamed that someone may break away from you, so you share not. In other words, for the sake of someone's friendship, you avoid sharing what may save their eternal soul. Perhaps you do not have a burning desire to see the lost come to Christ. This is also a major problem. There may be many other reasons why people do not share the gospel, but in some way or another, they're wrapped up in those ones. What can we do about that? How can we join Paul in having such confidence in the gospel, knowing it is the power of God for salvation? How can we share his passion for the lost? The answer to almost every major problem in life is very simple, yet very difficult. Repent and believe. Repent and believe is what the sinner who has never come to Christ must do. Repent and believe is what every Christian caught up in a sinful pattern must do to break free. And if we would have a sinful pattern of disobeying Christ and not sharing the gospel, then we have something we have to do. Repent and believe. Repent means to turn. Turn around. Change the behavior. Repent and believe. And the results of repenting and believing restore joy. Restored relationship, restored passion. Are there any in the church who have been here for years and remain unconverted? Are there any hypocrites here? Have you been pretending to be a believer but have never truly come to Christ? Repent and believe. Have you found yourself convicted by this sermon, realizing you have failed Christ by not sharing his gospel with the lost that he has placed you in the midst of? Repent and believe. Confession of sin is a first step. Confession is simply agreeing with God that the sin you have committed is a sin. But confession alone will not save you or change you. You must take a step beyond confession and repent. Turn around. Turn from the sin and turn toward Christ in his way, his life, his commands, and his great commission. The verses I've been preaching are a bridge. Paul wasn't done yet when he said he was not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And then Paul continues with another four. 
This means he is about to expand on the thought he was just making. So what is the for? Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. A gospel is not to be ashamed of. For the wrath of God is being heaped up against all unbelievers. They're rebels against God. Their sin may be funny and amusing to them, but it is deadly serious, and all unbelievers are going to experience the wrath of God. There is only one thing that is powerful enough to stem the tide of the wrath of God that is inevitably coming to every believer or unbeliever. That is the power of the gospel. The power of God for salvation for all who believe. So we must not be ashamed of this gospel. We must embrace it and embrace the proclamation of it as our own duty. God is still saving wretched sinners. And he has called you, Oasis Church, to be part of his miraculous, powerful, saving work. The power is found in the gospel. Are you ashamed of it? Ask yourself why. Do some soul searching. Repent and believe. I don't claim to know the hearts of all. God does. But the chances are that there are people in this room, perhaps some who have been coming to church their whole lives, who have yet to truly repent and believe. What will keep you from it? Let your pride be broken and come to Christ. Repent and believe. God can still save you. He would delight to do so. It is to his glory and honor when a sinner repents. Heaven rejoices when a sinner repents. If you have only been to church for many years and never really shared the gospel, now is the time to repent. Now is the time for revival to come into your life and into this church's life. If you would see God move, he will do it. Repent and believe. Finally, If you've been fearful to share your faith, repent of that fear and ask God to grant you the confidence and empowerment of his Holy Spirit to share the gospel. This is a prayer I know he will answer. And now I close with Jude chapter 24. This is a great doxology now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this tough message this morning would not be so tough, but that we would do what we need to do to respond to it in a positive way.
God, I pray that if there is any person in this room that till now has been an unbeliever, please, God, through your word this morning, do the work in their heart and in their spirit to draw them to yourself. Lord, if there's any long-time unrepentant non-sharers of the gospel in this congregation, I pray that you'll convict them to their very core, that they would repent and believe the gospel and decide that it is their job to share it as your scripture tells us so clearly. Lord, I pray that you will embolden us and give us a heart without fear as we share the gospel in our community to this world that so desperately needs it. And may we say with Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Lord, let us live this out and be a gospel church, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. And as we conclude our time of worship this morning we uh we ask you to um sing with us and at the same time this is our opportunity to give back to the lord